welcome back to the Value Adds Value podcast with Kyle Krieger and Wilkie Law, where we're sharing inspiring stories of educators just like yourself, helping you to develop your craft and sharpen your tools to become the teacher your students deserve. This is the Value Adds Value podcast. Let's jump into this next episode. What's good, fam? Welcome back to Value Adds Value. My name is Kyle Krieger, along with my guy, Wilkie V. Law, we have now hosted you through almost 300 episodes. Next week, we'll hit the 300 mark, and we are so pumped for that. Um, and we just want to say thank you for supporting us and staying with us this long. It, it really has meant the world to us. So um, this is part two of our conversation with Jen and Mira from Teaching as Intellectual. Um they teach at Ohio University and James Madison, respectively, in the Department of Education, especially with uh, early childhood special education, preparing teachers. And um, this is the second time we've talked to them in about six months, and it's just been such a fresh perspective and, and such an incredible conversation to be able to have with them and to see it from a different perspective, which is a lot of what we're working on this year. So we hope you enjoy this part, too. Uh, with Jen and Mira, part three will come out Monday, which will put um, episode 300 next Friday. So we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you listen to. And please go follow Jen and Mira, Facebook, Instagram, Teaching as Intellectual, go to their website, whatever you need to do. But um, yeah, we hope you have a great Friday, a uh, great week in February. We're getting towards the end. So we love you. Um, have a great week and we'll talk to you soon. And I think that Mira and I talk a lot to our graduated students who are now actively teaching. And sometimes we are in group texts where we are just saying to them, yes, your feelings are valid. That is really hard and really frustrating. And that kind of community is what we have to create in schools if we want to really invest in career educators. I would, Mira, what would, you I would audit your class right now if I had the chance because it, what you described is the exact circumstances of Wilkie and I meeting. Personally, I was a mess. But I had, I, I had this misconception that it was all of my school stresses that were causing me home stresses when it was the opposite. Yeah. Yes. And yes, I think that is really hard. We are this grind culture and this like constant productivity. I think um, Wilkie's earlier point about really taking a break over break. Um, that is not our culture. That's we teach teachers to have their teacher bag with them 24 seven and, you know, to always be working because your students, you have, your kids have nothing. Your school provides you with nothing. Their entire future hinges on the activity that you have planned. You have to constantly be saving them and nobody's talking about how to save yourself. Right. So that, and I've honestly learned that from engaging in this sort of broader teacher community that I have to be more actively teaching them to, um, really put themselves as a factor in their own wellness because dysregulated adults dysregulate kids. 
I think also just talking to them about all the mistakes I made as a first year teacher, like um, don't stay at school until it's dark outside, you know, like yeah. take time. And then we also talk a lot about um, finding your people, like finding your people that you can not vent to in terms of the teacher negativity talk that can happen in, you know, the faculty lounge or anything like that, but finding your people, kind of like what Jen was saying on our group text, right? Finding your people that can validate like, yes, that is frustrating or yes, not everybody has been prepared to think inclusively about children, right? Like, yes, you're still going to face that, right? You're still going to have colleagues that try to push you and knock you down and tell you that everything you've learned in your teacher prep program is not valid or doesn't work in the quote unquote real world, right? We get a lot of that. Um, but giving them spaces and kind of like Jen was saying, teaching them how to find those spaces, but then also cultivate those spaces so that they can kind of continue them. And that's kind of, I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that, um, well, really more Jen than me on Instagram, right? Like creating that space for people to, to come together and have those conversations and, and find your people. I think too, I was thinking Kyle about your original question. I think one of the other issues with this is that we so deeply devalue career teachers. Um, I mean, there's a broad devaluing of our profession, but the older a teacher is, the more dismissive we are of them. Um, when, which is wild, right? There's like this sweet spot of past five years, but less than 15 years when you are considered an expert teacher. After that, then we see you as being stuck in your ways or old school or right, whatever those terms are. And it, <laughs> it's a that, you know, that's not true. Um, it's a really problematic narrative. Um, I'm reading everything I'm, I'm reading. I just finished this book called the wolf at the schoolhouse door, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. I talk about this book all the time, but it, I've been really curious about the privatization and sort of how, um, the Republican party and primarily has sort of come out, out against public education and what that's rooted in and how we got here. And this book kind of created a lot of clarity for me in, in a lot of these things, but this issue of career teachers and how they've been vilified, right? That unions, the dismantling of educational unions is rooted in the idea that they're protecting these old problematic teachers. And that tenure is a way to kind of create a space where teachers don't have to continue to learn and grow and like evolve because they're protected. And that's a really problematic narrative. Like, would you wanna stay in a career that's gonna dismiss your expertise and your, your lived experiences after a certain point? Right. So I think we also have to really look at, is it age, is it duration in the field, or is it our structure of continuously telling teachers there's this flashy new thing that only sits on the shelf 
after that, right? So a, a teacher asked me recently about my experience with Second Step, which is a social emotional program curriculum. And I said, I see Second Step in so many closets. Like, I don't know what it looks like in implementation, but I know a lot of districts bought it. <laughs> and that, that creates in teachers who are active learners, the belief that whatever comes up is going to last for a hot second, but what they need within them to continue to do what's best for their students is going to come from them, not from some external source. But we're super dismissive of career teachers. So I think that's another part of it is like our early career teachers are often thinking about how do they resist becoming that teacher? How do they persist in the field without becoming stagnant? Can I, can I just add this, though? Is it some kind of way perceived, though, the old adage that says you can't teach an old dog new tricks? Maybe. Uh, because a lot of, I mean, I, I know that when I was a skill specialist, my most difficult teachers to work with were those veteran teachers who didn't want to try new things you know, who said, you know, oh, that's that's a bunch of malarkey. Nobody's going to pay attention to that. Students don't need that. I know what students need. So do, do those teachers come off this, are they dismissed because they dismiss? I think it's actually, I am, I am with you. That is definitely my experience. That's definitely the experience of our early career teachers. But I think it's not about years in the field. It's about your temperament and your personality as an educator. Mm. Because I also know tons of educators who have been in the field as long as I have or longer who are like, hey, I want to talk to you about this or that. Do you have something I can read about inclusion or ableism? I don't even, I never knew what ableism was. Can you teach me about it? And then I have other teachers who are like, that's not a thing. Listen, some kids aren't capable. Some kids can't cut it. Some kids aren't going to get that. So I don't think it's in, and we have early career teachers that are like that too, right? So I don't think it's about years in the field. And I think we should probably delineate, pull those things apart wow. and really talk about the dispositions of educators that are conducive to learning and seeing themselves as learners versus the years in the field. If years in the field, creates that, then that's something we as education, as a field need to address. Mm -hmm. If the longer you're in education, the less you are willing to learn, that, then we have, we have something to deal with there. I don't know that that, I don't know that I believe that, but I think that the willingness to engage in learning and seeing yourself as a learner is the key to being an effective career teacher. Well, and I think that's why we stress that so much, right? Like we're constantly telling our students, if you're going to be effective in this field, you need to be a lifelong learner. Like when I write teaching recommendations for students, if I see them as a lifelong learner, I write that in there because to me, that is one of the most important pieces mm -hmm. of being an effective educator. And I also, we, I talk to them, right? I talk to them about like, hey, guess what I learned when I was in my master's program? And guess what? I've learned that that's total BS now, right? <laughs> like, 
I've, I've, and I've had to change, right? And I talk to them about how I've had to read more and I've had to learn more and I've had to change my thinking and how important it is for them to, to be okay with that, right? Like to, to recognize, oh, okay, yeah, I'm gonna do better. I'm gonna learn this and I'm gonna do better and I'm gonna be better and I'm not gonna ever stop learning. I'm not gonna get to a point where like you said, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? Like I'm not gonna ever be that educator because I'm always gonna be open. But I think it's hard because I think teachers get so much PD thrown at them that I think it's really, <laughs> I think it's really easy to get in that mindset of, I don't wanna learn anything new, right? Um, I remember when I was in my doc program, we had a speaker come in and they were talking about how one of the biggest problems with education and keeping teachers was that we are in a field where we, and they had this down to more science than what I can remember, but every, I think it was three years, school districts adopt a new thing. So you never give teachers enough time to learn, to buy in <laughs> before you're throwing the next thing at them, right? And I think that that's often why you get teachers that are like, I'm not, I'm not buying into it anymore, right? Like I'm tired of every three years, there's this new box of curriculum or there's this new- Next big thing. Yeah, exactly. So I, I mean, I can, I can see, I can see why it happens. It's this cycle of, instead we have to slow down. And I think that's why Jen and I are so, just constantly stressing like the dispositions like Jim was talking about, right? Like it's so much about your thinking and your dispositions and I don't know. Well, and that's, I, where, that's where teaching as intellectual comes from. It's like, that's why we share what we're reading. That's why we share what we're learning because we are learning and we have a community of early career teachers that I, I mean, there are teachers in my life that I taught stuff that I no longer believe. Yeah, me too. And I, I think about that all the time. Like the harm that I did or the potential harm that I brought forth to a child in a classroom because I emphasized a specific um, behavior sequence, right? I, I used to teach when I was early in my career. I used to have to teach um, pretty, pretty, like white book behaviorism and I am not a behaviorist and you're going to have all these behaviorists in your comments telling me why I'm wrong. Um, but I, I have a lot, I feel a lot about that. I feel a lot about that, that, and I, I want to repair that. And I want to really talk now with the teachers in our orbits about how we humanize student behavior and how we think about behavior as a function of the bigger environment. And, you know, what am I doing that's influencing the student right now? What is the environment doing? What is that task I've asked of the student doing? How are all of these things, instead of putting the locus of control within the student? Um, 
so I've grown and I've changed and, and sometimes I think Mir and I talk about this sometimes, I think I'm not even able to be in this space anymore. I don't know if my beliefs really align with what I know about education, what I know about disability, what I know about special education as a system of delivery, can I operate within it? Um, and I think those are some of the other big questions as educators, we always have to, if you're constantly learning, then you're also pushing up against the boundaries of the system, right? Absolutely. I, I would like to kind of ask, because when you were talking about like the, the AI tech training, and as I'm remembering you talk about the trainings we had that sit in the closet and all that stuff, I think a question that I want to ask this year, and we wanted to talk to you kind of about the big picture is the economic big picture. And I guess from your perspective, and, and Will on this too, how much of adopting new curriculums, adopting new training programs, having all of this stuff, how much of that is economically driven by private companies? 100%. <laughs> I concur. <laughs> so I guess then the follow-up question is, <laughs> is there a way for... Is there a way for us to address, are, are there people in the education sp space that are trying to address that problem of the economic exploitation, let's call it what it is, economic age exploitation of kids and, and teachers? I think that is um, an, a, a byproduct of our political system, um, our view of education broadly uh, as a nation. Um, do, do you believe that education, public education, K-12, is a workforce development experience or the development of a democ democratic citizens. Um, that is sort of the two camps that we're in. And if you believe that education is workforce development, then that economic monetizing of the experience is an inherent part of it, right? That's how for-profit um, charters and even like University of Phoenix, all of those kinds of models come out of that economic perspective. If you like me and like Mira think that education is about the development of democratic citizens, then the small d democratic, meaning people who are in community with each other and who know how to engage in historical and contemporary conversation, right? About literature, about history, about art, about all of these things, then education looks a lot different, right? There's no benefit to a packaged model. I think the, the downside is that we're really far into this perception of education as workforce development. Um, so far down that path that the outgoing administration um, made an effort to couple the Department of Education with workforce and labor, right? So that that's telling. Um, I'm not sure that we are going to see a swing in the other direction in the degree to which we need in order to really re- buys and and go a different way. I think one of uh, the thing I've experienced the most is that educators 
tend to be, and I think this is because of the administrative structure of schools, um, very sort of concrete in thinking about these programs as teachers want to implement them with fidelity if they're implementing them. And in fidelity, they rarely are manageable in any way, right? And Mir and I, who we have worked for many years in educational research, and we know that the dosage at the research level is often completely unachievable in classrooms. So here's a packaged literacy curriculum. You need 90 minutes of this, you know, structured instructional delivery every day in order to get these evidence-based results. And you're like, okay, that's cool. I have 22 minutes for the block. <laughs> so that kind of stuff is, is problematic. And it always, you know, it never really aligns. But the issue that I think we're going to see more of is that, like with PBIS, right? It, it sort of made its way in language into the law. Yet, and it's lowercase in the law. And so the PBIS Shigai model, Horner model, is all capital. But that has been sort of implemented as this is what you have to do legally. Well, it's not. And it's not even a thing. It's a framework. So when teachers are like, well, we have to do PBIS, it, it means different things in different districts. In implementation, it looks very different in different places. But when you only have that one lens for what your school or your district does, it's, it, that's how it is. So that's the model that you have. That's how I have to do it. So oftentimes we're talking about things like these packaged programs, like we're talking about the same thing, but we're not. We're not even talking about the same thing. So there's, there's a lot of um, complexity in the buy-in. I also really always think about this idea of teacher buy-in as like, if I have to buy in, then you have to sell me something, right? In order for me to buy in. I also think that, and this is something I've learned a lot about recently in higher ed anyways, in terms of money, right? Um, because we've had lots of budget cuts because higher ed, I mean, people we need are, to bail out. Yeah. <laughs> people are not paying, like they, they are either not coming or they're withdrawing. Um, they don't want online or they do, you know, whatever it is. Um, so I have found, and I'm pretty sure this is the same with K-12, but the way that our administrative um, and fiscal structures are set up are that there's certain pots of money that have to go towards certain things, right? So for example, everybody wants to know why we are all getting College of Education t-shirts and sweatshirts, but we have no money for travel, right? We have no money for professional uh, memberships or anything like that. Well, the reason is because there's different pots of money, right? So like there's a certain pot of money that has to go towards curriculum. There's a certain pot of money that has to be used towards whatever it is. And I think that um, school districts are often faced with the same thing, right? They have a certain pot of money and they have to use it to buy curriculum. So they go and they're like, okay, well, what's, what's the latest trend, right? And then they go and they purchase this curriculum. But then what I have seen is that 
the curriculums are so expensive. They have these curriculums, but then they don't have enough money to pay to get the teachers trained to actually use the curriculum, right? So then teachers get this box of, I don't, I mean, you guys know, right? Like this box of manuals and workbooks and all kinds of things. And they say, go have fun or go use this or go implement this with Fidelity. And we haven't done any of the actual training or digging into what this tool is or how we can use it. And then no wonder. Or we have one half day. We have no sustained, you know, ongoing, like problem solving. Right. You know, I think that's interesting because in the PD space, one of the, one of my big issues is that there's very rarely any follow follow up. Yep. Um, you know, we're kind of okay. We're gonna we we got the next best thing. Here you go. You got it. Now go do it. Yep. And there's very little. I know, like my wife's school, there's a little different because our 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 district went to creating these uh, demonstration schools. Uh, starting at the elementary level and eventually moving up through all as their model, what they want the base to be. So they have these partners that they're meeting with consistently throughout each quarter that they're meeting with. If they start a project that they're doing training on, they must see that training all the way through and then provide feedback and back and forth. And I think that's a great model. Uh, But at the same time, for the other 99% of us, yeah. Well, and you that's know, resource heavy. Yeah. It's very resource heavy. So and I learned how to teach like that. When I, my first job, I was an early interventionist, which is infants and toddlers with disabilities doing home-based service, um, coaching families. And then I moved into a pre-K classroom in North Carolina as a part of a, uh, I had a grant. I was a classroom, model classroom for a grant in my area. And because of that, I had coaches and in, I had a literacy coach. I had, um, kind of a classroom environment coach and they were university people who were working on a grant funded literacy project, but I benefited because they were constantly available to me and they came to my class and they would spend some time with me in my classroom all the time. They knew my students. Then we could meet during nap time and they would talk to me about, you know, when you did this, you could have said this, this would have been a great extension opportunity. This would have been a feedback loop you could have engaged in. And they would coach me in the moment with my actual real life students. And no doubt I was a better teacher because of that. I was, I was, you know, early early in my career. I was young. I didn't have children of my own. There were lots of opportunities that they helped me learn about how I could use books across my centers, uh, you know, all of these different things. And then I became a model classroom for the state. So then other teachers across the state in similar classrooms like mine would come and observe and talk to me about what I was doing and how I had things set up and all that kind of thing. And the teacher dialogue, the teacher to teacher dialogue, the research to practice dialogue, all of that investment in me, I now see was, you know, not normal. And, and, but that's, that to me is how we have to, engage in professional development is that like being in in the learning together um and Mira and I don't get opportunities to do that I mean we 
very rarely get to have those kind of partnerships with teachers and our pre-service teachers. Sometimes we do because we have good relationships with our mentor teachers, but it's not a part of the plan. It's not built into the model. And I think um, the sort of movement in education is is a a disinvestment in that kind of human capital that you're talking about, Wilkie, and a more of an investment in the tech side that that Kyle sort of brought up originally. And that the less people we need to build strong teachers, the better. So if we can create models that you can do online, and if we can put Mira and I both are experiencing, I have 44 students in my class this fall, this spring online, because the idea is you can have as many as you can in an online environment. And that is, that's the business model. That's the capitalism model that we're seeing in, in education where the fewer teachers and the more students the better we can maximize our profits. Yeah, that is, you know, I, I, I can say this from an experienced uh, veteran teacher that if COVID did anything, it shrunk my class size to the point to where I think my largest class was 19 kids. I have not had 19 kids in a classroom ever in my educational career. You know, I've always had upward of you know, at least 25 in a sixth grade classroom. Um, and last year, you know, pre-COVID, we were, you know, some of my classes were at 34 and 35 students. To have only 19 kids to work with has been a dream scenario. You know, granted, it's frustrating having to teach through a mask. You know, I, I've had to start wearing double masks. Uh, one that's like a ventilated mask that painters wear that kind of takes the mask away from my mouth so that my projection can go out a little further. Um, I tried the little cup thing that you can buy, but then it dug into my skin too much and I didn't like that. So, but other than that, teaching 19 kids, you know, my smallest class is 12 kids, being able to separate those kids into small groups. Basically, I can teach six kids at a time. And that's beautiful. Yeah. You know, so you're going from six in a group to having 12 in a group. You know, it's a big difference of what you can deliver. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of smaller class sizes. I would say, give me a shorter class time with a smaller class and I can be just as effective as more time with more students. Because I think you can get more done. And, yeah, you know, right. the that university setting, I remember my first year in college sitting in a general studies classroom and I turn around and it's this lecture hall and there's like 140 kids behind me. You know, and I'm like, oh my, how is this this professor even gonna know I exist? Mm -hmm. You know, I opted out of going to some of the bigger colleges here in Texas. You know, I wanted to go to OU, I wanted to go to, you know, UT. You know, there are different schools that I wanted to go to, but I'm like, there's no way you're going to know me at these campuses. And to my surprise, when I got to Southwest Texas, because it was a teacher's college prior, you know, it was founded on creating great teachers. 
every single one of my professors knew me by name. Like they would, like you said, those intangibles where you're walking through the quad or you're sitting in a dining hall and your professor just comes and say, hey, can I sit down and have lunch? And you're like, yeah, absolutely. We got a text next week. Yeah, talk to me about, you know, and it's like those times and opportunities that you don't get now that I feel like is, yeah, I mean, it, it, I can only, I, I know we're struggling and I guess we never really think about the struggle of higher ed. Uh, I know my nephew, he struggled the first, you know, his first wave of um, virtual learning. And so he was like, look, I got to go back to school. Let me at least be there. Even though I'm virtual, let me be there. And that made all the difference because then he he was on the dean's list. You know what I mean? So he went from struggling to making the dean's list just because he was there. You know, and, and that's just proof positive that kids, you know, in that academic environment, they need that... That the, the the environment, the culture, that the college experience, and for pre-service teachers, they need to be in classrooms. Like, yeah. I mean, we don't talk enough about how we talk a lot about K twelve and like the disinvestment and you know pulling resources and underfunding, but higher education is in an absolute tailspin. We, it's not a sustainable model with the way that it has been underfunded and the lack of investment from our elected officials has resulted in an economic disaster. And if we believe in higher ed, I mean, I really have questions about whether or not this model will persist. Um, and, and in some ways, I think that's probably good. There are lots of ways that people can get information um, and the, a lots of ways that people can learn. But I also think that we as humans, right, our developmental trajectory is just a long one. And it takes that we think about frontal lobe development. Mir and I have worked with college students now, undergrad, really traditional college students. We have non-traditional students in our graduate programs. Um, but really traditional undergraduate students for a long time. And it is it is also, it is all of the things that you remember. It is also life skill development. You know, I sit down with students and I'm like, okay, let's look at your due dates and put them in your calendar. And then let's backward map when you're gonna work on it and let's put it in here. And then also let's put in when you're gonna work out and when you're gonna eat and when you're gonna sleep and when you're gonna lay on your phone and drop it on your face and watch, you know, YouTube videos. When are you going to watch TikTok? Like, let's talk about how to plan your life out because they don't have those skills. In high school, their lives are super structured, right? They're very structured from the time they wake up until the time they go to bed. And then they get to college and, a lot, and not all of them, but some of them really struggle. So we do a lot of that with our students, right? We sit, we like, and, and to your point about having smaller class size, I had 32 students in my group for three hours, but I broke them up and we would meet 12 for an hour, 12 for an hour, 12 for an hour. I did the same thing three hours in a row with a different group, which isn't awesome, right? Because for me, it's like, <laughs> okay, we've, I've already talked about this. But for them, it gave us a space to all be on the same screen, to all like to be able to talk, to get to know each other. We were in the same groups. And then, and I think Mira did this too. I would obviously do a lot of individual sessions, but I also had open like coffee hours and where students could just pop in to Zoom. Um, sometimes they're like, I want to know more about your tattoos. And I'd be like, all right, well, you know, 
we'll talk about tattoos for a little while. Or I want to know more about what it was like when you lived in St. Louis, or I want to know more, like just chat. And so all of those things were important because different people need different things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fam, thanks for checking out this episode. Number 298 of value as value. That sounds crazy. But um, this is the second part of our conversation with Jen and Mira. Third part's going to drop on Monday. And like I said, if if you don't follow them, if you're not familiar with their work, please do take a chance to go follow them and, and really um, get that perspective from uh, people in higher ed. It's, it's a really important conversation that I think we need to be having. And I hope we have it and continue to have it going forward. But Otherwise, we appreciate you. We love you. Thanks for being here. Have a great week.